Okay, good morning everyone. This is, I believe, the fifth week of our series on the Holy Spirit. And as has been stated, we are following very closely this book. So uh, I basically followed the outline of this chapter and I'm going to be pulling a lot from Sinclair Ferguson. He has a really nice Scottish accent, so I'm sorry that I can't uh, replicate that, but hey, maybe it'll come out randomly, and that'll be exciting. Um, so anyway, we are going to be, for the next two weeks, talking about chapter three, which is on the gift of the Spirit. And so we're going to be talking a lot about the event of Pentecost, which I, as I thought about it, I was like, man, this is actually kind of a confusing uh, aspect of, of the Bible in, in some ways. So we'll talk about that. At the outset, I, I want to say it's not overstating the case to say that to lose the doctrine of the Trinity is to lose Christianity. It's to lose the gospel itself. We worship a God who is self-sufficient. He's unchanging. He's relational. He's a God of love. And all of this could not be true apart from his triune nature. So I'm thankful that, we, that we're spending this time to talk about the Holy Spirit because this is not just like a cute little addition or something to God's word. This is, this is like fundamental to our salvation, that our God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's fundamental to who he is as the unchanging completely in and of himself self-sufficient God who needs nothing from his creation. Uh, he derives no new attributes from, from his interactions with us that were not already present in eternity past. So Pentecost is the subject of the next couple weeks. And I want to just throw out there at the outset, what, what comes to mind? Does, what comes to mind for you guys when you hear Pentecost? If you can just say something short. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good. Anything else? And like the guys speaking in tongues, whatever that means. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, anyone else? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, anything else? It was funny when I was thinking about this, I was like, I think I basically think of Pentecostals when I think of Pentecost. <laughs> Which is not great um, because that's, you know, Pentecostalism uh, started like 1900 something years after the actual event of Pentecost. Um, and, and yeah, I think of like kind of the, the version of speaking in tongues, uh, the, the angelic languages that's often um, thought of today. That's another thing that comes to mind when I think of Pentecost. Yeah, that's, that's not, not what was going on. Um, so we're going to talk about that more as well. I also wanted to real quick caution us against a couple of different misunderstandings and, and Des already spoke to this last week so I'd encourage you to, to revisit his lesson um, for, for more on this but I think it's I think it's really easy to to think of okay like before Jesus before Pentecost the Holy Spirit was just waiting doing nothing until Christ had risen and poured out the Spirit he was just chilling whatever like it, I, I think it it's a misconception that he was not active but it, what I want to point out at the outset is that 
the Holy Spirit has always been at work. We're not to think that Old Testament saints like Abraham, that he believed apart from the Spirit. In the same way that, you know, we, we know that all, all people are dead in sin. And apart from the new life given by God through the Spirit, we're unable to repent and believe. Amen? Amen. And so, it's funny because I think if we're not careful, we might unknowingly uh, assume that it was different for like Abraham, David, Moses. But no, even for them, the Spirit is the one who gave them new life, regenerated them, um, even pre-Pentecost, even pre-becoming uh, of Christ. Furthermore, we're going to talk about this more next time, but, um, you know, the, the Spirit seems to have even indwelt the saints. Desmond spoke to that as well. Uh, David said, do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Um, Isaiah 63 speaks of grieving the Spirit. And Thomas confesses Jesus to be Lord in John 20, which Paul says in 1 Corinthians that no one can say that Christ is Lord but by the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. So I hope that's helpful to keep in mind because at least for me, um, I don't know about you guys, but kind of growing up, that was very much the, it wasn't necessarily explicitly taught, but it was kind of implicitly taught that, yeah, the Holy Spirit, he really gets in on the action after Christ. You can identify with that, Anna? Yeah. Okay. And you, did, can anyone else kind of identify with that? Or you have something to add, Will? Yeah, I can identify yeah. with that. And um, I guess I just have a question with that. It's like when the Lord said, you know, it's better for you that I would believe so that you can receive the Holy Spirit. Like, it seems to me like there was a change. That's why he said it's better if I leave, it's better if the Holy Spirit comes. Yeah. So I wonder if you can talk about that. Yeah. That's a really good question. We're basic, so I'm going to kind of punt on that um, because we're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about even specifically that passage. Um, but I would just say that, you know, at the outset, you're right. Um, because the, what, um, at the same time that we don't want to think that the Spirit wasn't active, we also don't need to flatten everything. Like there is a difference um, between now, post-Pentecost and pre-Pentecost with the outpouring of the Spirit. And, and we're going to get to that today as well. So um, hang on. And if I don't address your question, my email is desmondgilmore at gmail.com. And you can, can, uh, you can ask me more. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> you have my info. But uh, anyway, that's, uh, that's a really good question. Thank you. Re- that's really insightful. Um, and then finally, just wanted to say, I, I've heard some pastors even kind of talk about Pentecost as if that's something that each church is to aspire to like we got to have our own pentecost let's lock the doors until the spirit blows through here and we all you know experience like the holy spirit flames or something um but but that downplays like that also is a misunderstanding as we're going to talk about more pentecost is more than anything it is an unrepeatable event in the history of salvation um so so similar to like christ's death and resurrection like we don't we don't think that that needs to be repeated and that's the same with pentecost um so we don't want to downplay the fullness of the gift of the spirit that we receive upon our salvation as if we need like a second blessing second pentecost um good all right so 
uh, looking at your note sheet, talking about the gift of the Spirit, and we're going to turn to Acts 1. Uh, go ahead and open to Acts 1, and could I have a volunteer read verses 4 through 8, please? Thanks, Des. Acts 1, verses uh, 4 through 8, it says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Thank you. This, this begins to get at Will's question, even because I want you to notice three things. One, in verse four, there's a promise of the Father. Two, there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit that's mentioned. In 3, in verse 8, there's a reception of power. Uh, Luke 24 says, you will be clothed with power from on high. Like, wait to be clothed with power from on high. So, there are at least these three things that are specially happening in the event of Pentecost. Pentecost is the beginning of the fulfillment of these three promises. And Sinclair Ferguson puts it better than I could. He says, Pentecost publicly marks the transition from the old to the new covenant it signifies the beginning of the the now of the day of salvation second corinthians 6 says now is the day of salvation it it publicly signifies this with the public visible outpouring of the spirit the speaking in languages human languages so that all could hear the preaching of the gospel so what is new in the new covenant ministry of the spirit is inextricably related to the significance of the pentecost event this historical moment that we're talking about in acts 2 that was drawn from ferguson again so in pentecost the last days also have their official beginning christ has ascended and now he's pouring out his spirit as the risen lord and i love this picture of What's happening here is the new creation, future age that we all are longing for, like we're longing to be free from, from sin and death in this broken world. Um, that new creation age is breaking in. It's breaking in this present evil age uh, by the Spirit as God pours out the Spirit as he builds his church. And we, all who are in Christ, united to Christ, are united to Christ by his spirit. And if that's true of you, that means that you are already participating in the age to come. You're, we're certainly not participating in it fully, um, but we are already participating in it. It's already not yet, already not yet. Both, both are true. So next week on your notes, it says John's testimony. That's what we're gonna focus on um, next week. We're going to really look at what the Gospel of Luke has to say. Um, so I, if I was to ask, what did Jesus have to do in order to accomplish our salvation? I'm assuming that 
the first things that come to mind would be his atoning death, his resurrection uh, that defeated death. Um, we'd probably also think like, well, also it, it all started with his incarnation. In order for any of that to take place, the eternal son of God had to take on flesh and be born of a virgin. That's all really good. But what, what was um, eye-opening for me is realizing that Pentecost is in that same category. Pentecost also is a necessary component of Christ's accomplishment of our salvation. Sinclair Ferguson points out that just like Calvary, the New Testament views Pentecost as an event with multifaceted significance, and it's understood as an aspect of the work of Christ. So work of Christ incomplete without Pentecost. And this, this is in part because after his resurrection, he receives the promise from the Father and is in a new stage of relationship with the Spirit. We're going to hopefully unpack that more. Um, but he's now sending the Spirit in a new and fresh way and baptize, like people are being baptized in him. Um, so for the rest of the time, we're going to go through each bullet point and we're going to look at some of these different threads that Luke weaves together. And there's some, I, I thought there was some really helpful and insightful, um, I, I guess, like, biblical theological strands that Ferguson was able to pull together. Like, a lot of stuff I had never seen. So I, I hope it's encouraging to you guys as well. Go ahead and turn to Luke 3, um, because we're going to talk about the Spirit and fire. Uh, John, John talks about how... Christ's baptism is in the Holy Spirit and in fire. And so I want to talk about the significance of that. It's really interesting. Um, so turn to Luke 3, and could I have someone read verses 15 and 16? Oh, thanks, Kyle. Luke 3, 15 and 16. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John... Whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Yeah, thank you. Um, does anyone want to take a stab at what fire is usually a symbol of in the Bible? Not a trick question. Yeah, sorry, did you say something? Okay. Yeah, judgment. Yeah. You got it. Yeah, I think overall judgment is... Wait, did someone else say something? Corrine said judgment. Oh, Corrine said... You, you copied her? <laughs> tried, to, tried to steal her credit? Nice. Oh. Everyone know that it was Corrine who said it first. So. Um, no, that's good. That's exactly right. Judgment. So we uh, you know when you're reading like the prophets in the old testament it's it's clear that they're prophesying both they're prophesying a coming day of the lord and yes there is going to be a salvation for god's people but also prevalent is coming judgment were you gonna say something harrison Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that that's good. Yeah, not to say that fire that fire is exclusively a sign of judgment, but just that often it is a sign of judgment. And um, I mean, I suppose you could argue either way, but I'm I'm going to argue that John thought when he said this, he he was thinking judgment. Um, and so that's a good point, though, because I you know, yeah, it, we'll we'll get there. Um, so fire's a, a picture of judgment um and in in the prophets they're prophesying a coming day of the lord an end time salvation and an end time judgment and so think about how interesting this is john the baptist obviously a a man of god uh filled with the spirit in in luke 7 he actually sends two of his disciples to ask jesus if he really is the coming messiah and Apparently, I, I think this is because he was confused as to why there was no judgment, final judgment, yet in Christ's ministry. Because uh, think about it. The, um, John the Baptist was in jail when he sent his disciples to Jesus. And that means that the people of God's enemies were basically running rampant. They were throwing God's people in jail. Even a prophet as uh, mighty as, as John or yeah as as faithful as john and so he's probably like what in the world like i thought the messiah was supposed to come and set all things right um so go ahead go ahead and turn to actually no you don't need to turn i'm just gonna read john 12 47 to 48 jesus here says if anyone hears my words and does not keep him i do not judge him For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. And so right here, Jesus himself is even saying something that was a hard pill to swallow um, for those who wrongfully thought that uh, right when the Messiah came, it was just going to be like final judgment right away. And part of Jesus' response to John's disciples in Luke 7 is to say, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So he's calling John the Baptist to not stumble at the delay of final judgment. He wasn't crazy. Like, obviously, the the Bible speaks to coming judgment with the Messiah. Oh, sorry, were you going to say something? Oh, I didn't. Um, didn't want to. Can you just stop what you were saying? No, you're fine. I'm not sure. I think I'd have to think about that for a second. But I mean, it, it's it is true that you're either going to receive the spirit or you're going to receive end time judgment. I mean, I, we can say that with confidence. Whether or not that verse is specifically getting at that is, I guess, more the question. But yeah, yeah, that's a good thought. So so anyway, John didn't understand the purpose of Jesus' first coming, and again, not not just the judgment was he confused on, but the the great scandal of the gospel is that the coming Messiah was to actually bear the full force 
of the wrath and judgment of God due to his people. He bore that on himself. The great day of judgment won't come until Jesus comes back because it is first coming. He bore the wrath for us. So when John talked about the baptism of spirit and fire, I don't think he could yet imagine. Well, he might have. He might have. He probably he probably got it to an extent, um, you know, when he's talking about how Jesus is the Lamb of God. But to understand that the very fire that he spoke of was first going to fall on the sun was probably something he wasn't uh, imagining. And that fire fell upon him in the event of the crucifixion. And so what I think also speaks to this is, um, quoting from Ferguson, Luke's researches were not lacking when in his record of Jesus' post-resurrection words to the disciples, all all Jesus says is, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't mention fire. And what Ferguson argues is that the reason he doesn't is because the flames of judgment for God's people have already been exhausted in Christ. So even the tongues of fire, I think not only does that symbolize the presence of God, as Harrison pointed out, but the tongues of fire, I think, are, are a hint that the baptism of the Spirit is gracious rather than a destructive power of judgment because Christ bore this in himself in the Passion. And so, um, yeah, that insight from Ferguson was really encouraging we deserve it's it's yet another reminder that everything we have is undeserved like we deserve wrath it we can't take our salvation for granted we can't it's not like yeah of course jesus was going to die god's merciful you, you know no like it's it is mercy and it's so cool to see the tiny pointers to that that can easily go unnoticed does anyone have any questions about that further questions all right good Go on to the next section. We're going to look at promise fulfilled. Uh, Go ahead and turn back to Acts. We're going to uh, read Acts 2, verse 33. Could I have someone read Acts 2, verse 33? Nice and loud so that the recording hopefully picks it up. Thank you. So, who received the promise? Not your question. Who received the promise? According to this verse? Jesus. Right. And who poured out the Spirit? Jesus. And who did he receive the promise from? The Father. Right. Now go to Galatians 3. We're going to read 13 and 14. I'll, I'll read it for us. Galatians 3, 13 to 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. 
What I want to point out here is that at Pentecost, the Spirit coming was was doing multiple things. The two things I want to highlight is one, of course, it's fulfilling the new covenant promises of Ezekiel 26 and Jeremiah 31, uh, individual salvation, um, sanctification type promises. But what I thought was really cool is like the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost is also inextricably linked to the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So in Genesis 12, when God promises Abram that all nations will be blessed in him, this is tied to the outpouring of the Spirit in the church age. The outpouring of the Spirit is the means by which the nations will be blessed. And Ferguson also linked it to, to Psalm 2.8. It's a messianic psalm. And uh, verse 8 says, uh, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. And so when the son ascends, and he asks for the, the promised spirit, uh, the father fulfills that promise, and this is now how the son receives the nations as his inheritance. It's as, by the power of the spirit, the gospel spreads, and nations are brought into submission to the Son. So Pentecost has caught like cosmic uh, ramifications. It has all nations ramifications. And we're going to talk more about that with judgment reverse. But first, I just want to say real quick, looking at new creation, the next section on your notes, um, this, this is actually... The, the language in, um, does anyone want to take a stab at um, in Acts 2? Um, let's go ahead and read that. Could someone read Acts 2, 1 through 4? And then I'll, I'll ask a question. Acts 2, 1 through 4. Thank you. This might sound like a reach to us, but I would argue that that's because we're not um, ancient Near Eastern Jewish people. What do you guys think, from, from what Anna just read, what do you think is reminiscent of Genesis 1 in that passage? What is What perhaps is reminiscent of creation in Genesis 1? And don't be shy because this is a hard question because we're not ancient Jews. The first thing are. that came to my mind, I can totally yeah. is just that, like, the mighty rushing wind has something to do with it. But I don't know, maybe, like, the spirit yeah. hovering over the waters. Oh, my goodness. Was, like, the mighty rushing wind. I have no idea. Wow. Jewish. That was great. <laughs> um. That was great. No, that's like, yeah, that, that's what I was getting at. And I, th I think that would have been more clear, um, more clear to us, uh, to the original audience. Um, but yeah, I think that's the exact connection. The, the gospel writer Luke is intentionally 
um, making this connection because we have a creation, new creation thing going on here. At creation, the spirit hovered over the waters. Um, the, the Ruach Elohim, the, that's like uh, the Hebrew for spirit or breath or wind of God. And so when we see a, a wind sweep through, sweep through the house, it, it's to call to mind this, this uh, spirit activity at the very creation. And the reason that that's important is because this is a creation event happening as well. Only it's a new creational reality that's happening now. And so in both creation and the new creation, the spirit is active and the spirit is bringing order. Um, any questions there? Okay. So yeah, moving on, judgment reversed. This, this is another thing. This is another thing that just uh, connects it to the spread of the gospel, the Great Commission. But obviously, as, as we've talked about, tongues, uh, perhaps the elephant in the room, uh, if given that tongues are, are practiced uh, very widely today in, in a different way than this, but um, or what is said to be tongues. At Pentecost, the, all these people were filled with the Spirit, and they began speaking in languages. And people are like, what's going on? Are these people drunk? Um, you know, what is happening? And, and Peter responds. Um, and, but first, like, before we get to what Peter says, look at what the text says um, before his response. It lists a bunch of nations. In Acts 2, verse, verses uh, 8 through, like, 11, he's, he's saying the Parthians, the Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya. Like it's all these places and you're like, what is interesting? Wow. So there's people from all over the world. Um, what, what this connects to is the, actually the, um, we're going to talk about how the, how Pentecost is a reversal of the Tower of Babel in a second. But right before the Tower of Babel episode is a passage that's known in Genesis 10 as the Table of Nations. Um, does, anyone, does anyone remember what the table, or has anyone heard this phrase before? The table, okay, Table of Nations. So the Table of Nations is, the, is Genesis chapter 10. It refers to basically there's a list of 70 of Noah's descendants, and it, it just lists them um, you know, each one basically was a founder of a different nation with its own distinct language. And so interestingly, chronologically, Babel, even though it's, it's in the chapter after, chronologically, Babel took place before Genesis 10 because it presupposes different languages. But anyway, right there with Babel is this table of nations. Um, and so what Ferguson points out is that we have a table of nations thing going on here as well in acts 2 and that's it that's seen in uh the, the verses we just referenced uh all these all these nations listed uh were coming here and hearing the word so does anyone want to does anyone want to um take a stab at how this connects to Babel before before we before i, I go into it more um how how does pentecost how does how does the, the gift of speaking in tongues, speaking in known languages, so that people um, in, it says in, in verse 7, 
or verse eight, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So how is Pentecost as they're hearing in their own language, hearing the preaching of the word in their own language, how is this connected to Babel? Oh, sorry. You got it, Kyle. Um, yeah, in the same way that it was language that was used to separate and divide and scatter people, now it's language that's used to gather, bring in, and include people that were separated. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, it's the perfect reversal. Because at Babel, you know, you remember, the people came together. They got in um, Genesis 9. He said, go fill the earth. That was a command. The people disobeyed that command directly. And they sought to, in their pride, uh, just this complete humanistic impulse to come together to, to basically be their own gods and make a name for themselves. And they do this, so God comes down and judges them, of course, by confusing their languages. And I think that there was mercy in this judgment because, for one, God basically force them to spread out uh, mercifully rather than just like you know wiping them out right there um, he dispersed them which was a mercy and and this was also gracious because it they were no longer able to come together as as one in this rebellious way because the languages were confused so it even um, it, it cut off this uh, temptation in a sense um, at least this specific temptation of all of them coming together, but it was still a judgment because now the languages are confused. And that is what is directly being reversed because at Pentecost, they're speaking in languages so that everyone can understand. And the, the new covenant people is being brought together. Um, people from all over the world, all sorts of languages are now made a part of the same people and they're united by one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So, quoting from Ferguson, on the day of Pentecost, the effects of sin began to, uh, the, uh, a reversal, sorry, a reversal of the effects of sin began to appear in a reconciled people constituting both Jew and Gentile. Now, looking at Pentecost and Sinai, the second to last section on the notes. The New Testament also makes a clear connection between the giving of the law and Pentecost. And so go ahead and turn to Hebrews 12, and we're going we're gonna to hopefully see some connection here. Hebrews 12, 18 through 21. Once you're there, if someone could read that, that would be great. Yeah, 18 through 21 and 12. For you have come not to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom in a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. But they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountains, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that they said, I tremble with fear. Thank you. So this is describing the Sinai event and drawing from what we we just read in Acts 2 what is similar here 
what is similar between Sinai, what we just read, and Pentecost? I, I found three things. Um, what is what is similar? Just what similar themes? It doesn't have to be like extremely like super particular. Kyle. Fire. Fire. Yeah, absolutely. Fire. Anything else? This is kind of hard, but wind, the tempest. Um, there's definitely wind in both. And then, does anyone see anything else? Sorry, what'd you say? Not touching the mountain. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're saying like that was that was true at Sinai. Like they couldn't even approach the mountain. Okay. Yeah. That that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that um, necessarily connects to Pentecost, but that's like yeah. That's a yeah. No. That no. That's fine. No. That's good. Like it is. It's it's profound to think about that. The, that's the holiness of God on display. So, yeah, the, the last thing was just a divine tongue because God, um, there was a voice, a voice that was so glorious and terrifying that the hearers begged that no further messages would be spoken to them. And then there's also uh, a divine tongues at Pentecost, albeit in a different way, but we see the same divine tongue theme. And so the other thing is the covenant mediators. Who's the covenant mediator? Sinai? Moses, who's the covenant mediator of the new covenant? Jesus. So Christ had just ascended to the right hand of God at Pentecost, just as Moses had ascended up the mountain at Sinai to meet with the Lord. And like Moses coming down with the law, Christ is coming down in the gift of his own spirit. Only this time, uh, Ferguson uh, was helpful here, Christ comes with the spirit who both writes the law on hearts rather than stone tablets and the spirit actually gives the grace and power needed for God's people to obey his commands. And so this should bring to our minds all sorts of new covenant promises in places like Ezekiel 26, Jeremiah 31. Um, in uh, like by the spirit, the law is written on our hearts um, at Sinai, the law was written on tablets. And the law written on tablets, of course, is powerless to give us the heart change that we need. All it can do is condemn us. It kills us. It just condemns. Um, the law is good, but it condemns us because we fall short of it. And so this contrast with with Pentecost is glorious because now God is giving us the law and the power to keep it by his spirit. Christ is coming down just as Moses came down. And 2 Corinthians 3 also a great passage and connection here uh, because it speaks of the glorious difference between the old and the new as it says the letter kills but the spirit gives life. So the spirit comes in Pentecost to introduce this new era. Finally, I want to try to, in our last uh, 
few minutes, I want to tackle what I think is kind of one of the most challenging parts, the, the aspect of prophecy here, because prophecy is an often debated term. It can be used in many different ways, even in the Bible. I think it can be used different ways to an extent. And so I want to talk about the connection uh, to prophecy, because as, as you'll uh, remember, Peter quotes Joel chapter 2 in his sermon. And what Joel 2 was a prophecy of was um, all of God's people prophesying. So we, we need to like ask, okay, wait, what does that mean? How is Pentecost a reflection of that? Because at least I was confused by that. Um, hopefully less confused now, but it's, you know, when you stop and think about it, it's like, okay, wait, what's going on here? Um, let's turn back to Acts 2 if you're not already there. And could I get someone really loudly um, to read 14 through 18? Acts chapter 2, 14 through 18. Yeah, Josiah. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Job. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Yeah, thank you. So, Peter, this is the very beginning of his sermon, and he's, he's, it's, he's starting out answering the question of, what does this mean? People were perplexed, and people were also saying, they were mocking them and saying they're filled with new wine. And so now Peter stands up and he's going to say, this is what it means. And he first goes to Joel 2. Joel 2, as Desmond just read, says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And then later in 18, in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And so what Peter is, I think, very clearly saying is he is identifying the speaking in tongues that's going on with prophecy so Peter uh, Fer Ferguson direct quote Ferguson Peter thus regarded tongues when understood naturally by the hearers or interpreted for them as the functional equivalent of prophecy so that's important because the people were understanding what was being said that's necessary if there's no interpretation if there's no understanding it's it's not it's not any good, at least for edification. It might be good for judgment, but um, but he's saying that this speaking in tongues is what fulfills the prophecy, the uh, prophesying. Um, so we're going to be able to talk about this a little more um, next week. But what's going on here is is not that all of God's people will now be prophets as if like all of us are supposed to like now speak in tongues but um or be prophets in this uh specific um like miraculous gift sense but it's saying that the spirit is now poured out in unrestrained measure and he is distributed without geographical or ethnic limitation on all people as ferguson says so the pouring out in unrestrained measure is 
is uh, prophesied in Joel 2. Um, pour out my spirit. Pour out, uh, pour out my spirit on all flesh. And there's no longer this geographical or ethnic limitation because, you know, it, there's already been this table of nations listed. It's people from all over the world who are coming to partake of the spirit as um, thousands are converted on this day. And um, there's no longer this... Uh, because in, in, it's not that like a foreigner or a Gentile couldn't become a part of the people of God in the Old Testament, but they had to basically become uh, ethnically Jewish. And, and like they had to uh, adopt um, the Jewish rites of like circumcision. And they, they uh, it, it was different than what it is like now. Uh, all these uh, particular aspects like ceremonial and civil aspects of the law um have passed away and so that's one of the big differences is that the spirit is now distributed without this limitation um and so when moses in number in numbers 11 moses is like i wish that all the lord's people were prophets with the spirit on them um he he longed for that day and that that day is what is being fulfilled at pentecost Ferguson says again, he says, a status, that of prophet and relationship, this intimate knowledge with God, which was known at first only by a few under the old covenant, could now be enjoyed by all. And so there was a, there was a difference between Moses and your average Israelite in terms of the intimacy uh the intimate knowledge of god and now part of what's happening at pentecost is this is known and experienced and experienced by all in this greater outpouring um desmond would you add do you have anything to add i feel like uh this is part of what was particularly confusing me in some ways do you have anything to add to clean any of this up for us sorry i was reading numbers oh you're fine but, yeah uh, what? well i i just um i i think I think it, it's, uh, in my mind, it's a little bit tricky to understand that the spirit was at work. Um, and in a lot of ways, uh, there is continuity between what he was doing in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But at the same time, there's this greater outpouring. There's this uh, spread of the gospel unhindered to all nations. Um, and there's, there's a significant difference. And so I just... I was curious if you had anything to add or specifically with the um, of the spirit in relationship to like the gospel going to the nations. Sorry, I put you on the spot so bad. <laughs> but yeah, never mind. Just yeah. just kind of uh just the 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 fact that it's like the continuity, like how you tread the line of recognizing uh, the continuity, but also seeing that there's yeah. um there is yeah. a change. There's like a new era yeah. that's verse, being inaugurated. Yeah, a verse that came to mind um, that, that I point to a lot when I'm thinking about this was is First Peter um, 1, 10, 10 through is 12. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours search and inquire carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It 
it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you again by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look so he pointing back to the prophets who prophesied he said they were searching and inquiring um, about the person um, and they did this as, as the spirit was in them they they searched and inquired what person or time the spirit in them was indicating when he predicted Christ so as they're looking um, forward and even prophesying he says there uh, it seems to be clear to, that, that they're doing it by the spirit yeah. and it's not and I talked about this a little yeah. last week how the spirit would rest on prophets priests um, kings even as they uh, fulfill their office but it, that's that giving of the Holy Spirit or that anointing was for a specific purpose but that doesn't mean that they didn't have mm-hmm. the spirit in them yeah so I think if we, yeah. we have to have sort of two two categories yeah. there. Um, and so the spirit coming in the New Testament, um, there's a lot of fulfillment there. There's there's temple theme fulfillment um, as believers become the, the stones of a temple, pointing back to the Old Testament temple and the spirit dwelling in them now as opposed to the temple. So th- there's a lot going on there. But um, also it's really something unique concerning the New Testament church that has yeah. a lot of what you brought out already just with yeah. prophecy and evangelism and so it's not and it can be, it's something I had to wrestle with too um, and I wrestled with and as I was going through you know, classes and reading it was something I was like well how does, was he here and he left and he came back, was he never here and he came but I think if we have them in the right categories and we can see that um, there was an indwelling but there's also a giving of the spirit for a unique and specific purpose just yeah. as it was in the Old Testament the prophets, priests, and kings. Yeah, so. yeah, that's good. Thank you so much. Yeah, that that gets at uh, another uh, quote from Ferguson, which I wish Arnie was here because he, he loves the PPK. <laughs> but um, but uh, you know, Ferguson point out that um, that in Christ now in this new covenant era in Christ we all have the immediate personal knowledge of God. And in this sense, we are all prophets, priests, and kings. And so, yeah, our, our uh, anointing of the Spirit in this particular way is weighty. Yeah. And um, I just wish Arnie was here to appreciate that. <laughs> um, yeah, I want to I wanna conclude real quick, and then maybe we'll have time for any questions. But Pentecost um, was the 50th day from the Passover. And it was also known as the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of the First Fruits. And the Feast of Harvest was when the first fruits were gathered, according to Exodus, and uh, the first fruits were, were offered to the Lord. So I love this connection because it is therefore all the more significant that at Pentecost we see the first fruits of the, the ingathering of the nations. Um, the, the building of the church uh, in this new covenant era. And in Peter's sermon, uh, the, the gospel brought a harvest of all sorts of converts from all, all these nations. And, um, and this is, this in this, Pentecost truly is a, a game-changing like turning point. It's, it's a hinge that marks the dawn of the new era. 
Um, so it's not this repeatable thing, although we're going to see its effects. We see its effects as the gospel continues to, to go forth. We see its effects um, as, as we receive the Spirit upon believing in Christ. And I, I put this quote at the bottom of your notes. Um, the great uh, defender of orthodoxy, um, Trinitarian orthodoxy, Athanasius said, The word took bodily form so that we might receive the Holy Spirit. God became the bearer of a body so that men might be bearers of the Spirit. So our salvation accomplished by Christ has a has the result of us being filled with the Spirit, a Spirit result. Uh, Christological salvation, Spirit result. And this equals fellowship, communion with God. The Spirit bears witness to our spirits that we are children of God, and He is the guarantee and the down payment of our eternal and glorious inheritance. And that is worthy of our praise. So before I close in prayer, well, yeah, I guess we have a time. Is there any concluding uh, thought or question before I close this? Yeah, I, was, I was thinking about another verse um, based on what you, what you asked earlier. And it's Ephesians chapter 1, um, verse 13. It says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So here, believing is associated with, uh, with the gospel. Believing in the gospel is associated with the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And you mentioned this earlier. Um, if, if those... If, our brothers and sisters and saints in the Old Testament weren't sealed with the Holy Spirit, then uh, what is the alternative for how they were saved? Um, yeah. This, uh, the yeah. Bible talks about regeneration being by the Spirit. Yeah. A new heart is by the Spirit. To believe is by the Spirit. So yeah. um, if they did believe, and we know they did, yeah. if many did, then it, um, I, we wonder what, what is the alternative? Is yeah, it, is it there's no good alternative. Right, there is no, <laughs> yeah. no other alternative that you see in scripture. Yeah, it's not the sacrifices because they weren't enough. Um, but if they look to what the Lamb pointed to, mm -hmm. um, this has to be a work of the Spirit and regeneration. Um, and so I think I think maybe our doctrine of the Holy Spirit um, we can maybe broaden it out a little more than usually how we think about it, which is only in reference to. Um, either prophecy and gifts were only in reference to um, salvation, but there's there's both and going on there at yeah. different times in redemptive history. So yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, even the, the preservation of yeah. the Holy Spirit was necessary yeah, even before uh, Christ came for Pentecost. And yeah, I, I hope that's helpful. Like he, um, yeah, like like Jess said, there's no good alternative. To it's like if if the spirit was not um, working faith and preserving God's people in the Old Testament, then we're forced to to basically say that salvation was not of God fully back then. 
And of course, none of the New Testament writers who wrote so glowingly of the Spirit's work in the New Covenant Age believe that. So all their all their uh, writing about the the glorious uh, coming of the Spirit um, is not to not to negate any of that. And yeah. so, yeah, I hope that's helpful. And next week we're gonna dive into John and and continue to work through these things. Um, if you still have unanswered questions, hopefully next week will help. Um, and yeah, let's uh, let's close in prayer. Father, you are so good to us. We we thank you for the gift of your Spirit. We praise you that by the Spirit we are united to Christ and can have confidence, a secure hope um, that we will be with you. We already have fellowship with you and we await perfect, unending, unhindered communion with you in the new heavens and new earth. And we are weak. We, we are prone to wander, prone to, to lose sight of that. But we pray that you will help us live in light of that day. Um, and we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thank you.